Stay hungry, stay foolish. Obesity is at an all-time high. Lots of people at work are working with high visceral fat, fat around their organs, love handles, bellies, or man boobs. In a knowledge economy, taking care of our bodies is extremely important because they power our brains. And today's guest is performance and health nutritionist, body recomposition expert, whose clients include England Rugby, Tottenham Hotspur, Man City, and currently Reading and Burnmouth Football Clubs. Matt Lovell is an expert in corporate wellness, and we welcome to the show. Welcome, Matt. How are you doing? It's great to have you on the show, man. It's been a long time, and just to give our, our listeners some context, you and I met during my time with London Irish Rugby Club, and I found it transformational, the work you did with us back then, and it was way ahead of its time. So it's great to reconnect with you, man. No, thanks a lot. Like a lot of things, it goes quickly, and it, and it also seems like a lifetime ago as well. It sure does, and it's interesting because I'd like our listeners to understand this isn't going to be about elite performance, but it's going to be very beneficial for anybody who is an elite athlete or an elite performer of any kind. But the elite performance we're going to talk about today is in the office. When we met and I was in the world of diet and training and nutrition, my context was very, very different than it is today because I understand today the stress people are under in the workplace, the challenges they have to get good diet and good nutrition. But I hope today to get some wisdom from you, Matt, about how to overcome that and some tips that we can use in the workplace to overcome this growing obesity problem we have in society. Yeah, absolutely. I think the term obesogenic environment is really apt. We basically live in a situation where it's you have to work quite hard to stay lean because the choices we're faced with and the convenience combined with a lack of necessary movement to get places, energy-saving devices and so on, are all conducive to basically putting the body into storage mode. So it's a tricky one because you talk to a lot of people and they say, well, we're just eating too much and we're not moving enough. And whilst that seems very simple to say, and, and it's, it's absolutely true, you know, if you do do those two things, you are more likely to store fat as fuel. The problems must run a bit deeper than that, because if it was just as simple as doing that, then everyone would just do it, and then everyone would be of a normal weight. Clearly, they're not. So there's a multitude of maybe deeper factors that need to be resolved in order to resolve this issue. And it's interesting, Matt, you, you say that even people who are overweight, so they don't have to look obese, but they're clinically obese due to a, an extreme lack of muscle. And this is a kind of a hidden killer. And these are the type of people who go and go, they might die of a heart attack or they might be diagnosed as obese. And people go, what? How did that happen? I'd love if you explained a little bit about that. So you've got a few things in there. One is that you'll be a certain weight for your height. So that's termed a body mass index. So it's kind of like how tall are you versus how wide are you, uh, including waist circumference. Now, whilst that is a crude measure of body composition in, in a, in a non-active population, it normally does relate to how fat someone is. As soon as someone becomes active, then it becomes much, much less relevant. So a rugby player back in the day, uh, like Lawrence Delalio, would be a BMI of 33. So he'd be defined as clinically obese, but clearly with a fat percentage of sub 10%. 
a huge amount of muscle. All of that weight that he's carrying is functional strength and functionally built to play the game of rugby. Now, equally, if you get a busy exec who doesn't go to the gym, sits around for eight hours a day, doesn't eat very much protein, doesn't exercise, and they might have a BMI of, let's, let's say it's 26, 27. So it's just outside the normal range of 19 to 25. So they're just a tiny bit overweight. But with someone like that, because of their, their lack of movement and their sedentary lifestyle, you might find that their, their body fat percentage might be way over 25 or even over 30% fat. So whilst clinically they would be deemed just as overweight, they're actually metabolically very over fat. So they're technically obese in terms of their fat percentage, but they're only overweight in terms of their total body weight. So one of the first things I'd suggest anyone does that is interested in this area is is uh, to test a few biometrics and get some get some numbers. So you know, invest in a set of scales that can read your body fat, the bioimpedance scales, get a tape measure, do some basic arithmetic and work out your body mass index, your weight, see what the scales are saying in, in terms of an estimated body fat, get the tape measure around the waist. That waist measurement is as good a reflection as any of your body fat and, and your visceral fat levels. So, so the visceral fat is the fat which is underneath the abdominal wall, so it's not fat you can actually grab and squeeze. It's actually the fat internally around the organs, which is more of a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. It's that one, Mal, actually, that really struck me because about three years ago, I went to a gym and they had just got a new machine. They got in a machine like this and they tested me. And I was like cock of the walk, kind of going, I'll be fine, you know, because I looked, I looked in great shape. And then he tested me and he kind of goes, okay, well, there's good news. You have metabolic age of a 28-year-old. And he said, but there's some bad news. And the bad news is you have a very high level of visceral fat. I thought he was joking. And he goes, no, I'm serious. And I go, why is that? And he said, two reasons. One is lack of sleep. And I had just had a, a new baby at the time, which explains that. And the other is high work stress. And he said, and when both of them come together, you have problems. And I was thinking there is a massive majority of the workforce that are in that position and they may not be lack of sleep because of a baby. It might be work stress. It might be relationship stress, whatever it is. But lots of people are living in that state, that fight or flight state where their body is constantly in fear and stress. And that creates huge levels of cortisol, which in turn creates the belly fat and the body fat. I'd love if you explained what's going on there on the inside and then how it manifests on the outside. That's a great reflection of what's happening to pretty much everyone that's working too hard in any big city in any country in the world. The fight or flight stress response is there. It's a survival mechanism and it's sometimes called the fight, flight or freeze response because essentially when presented with danger, You'll either run, you'll either attack, but sometimes you can't do either and you stay still and you freeze. Um, and it's related, if it's something that happens immediately, such as saber-toothed tiger jumping out on you or someone literally attacking you, you'll release a large amount of adrenaline, which is a fast-acting stress hormone. Its purpose is to cause the body to dump a load of sugar and fat into the bloodstream. It constricts all the blood vessels shuts down digestion, 
It takes blood away from the internal organs to the muscles. It thickens the blood slightly. So it prepares you for a battle situation. So should you get injured or cut, you'll bleed less quickly. It increases your blood pressure, increases your heart rate, so you, you can do more in terms of physical fighting. And that, that's essentially what, it, what adrenaline does. But then if we take a slight step back, there's what might be termed a slow-acting adrenaline, which is cortisol. So cortisol is released more in terms of perception of impending threat, uh, longer-term stresses such as lack of sleep, uh, marital stress, work stress, uh, impending threat, you know, if you've got deadlines, people, uh, interpersonal difficulties in the office place, that sort of thing. So what that can do is is raise your cortisol and keep your cortisol raised. Now, cortisol is very good at waking up in the morning, so we release, we release quite a lot in the morning to, as part of a cortisol awakening response. But then after that, it tends to dull down and it should, it should stay at relatively low levels and dip to, to its lowest level at night to allow room for the other sleepy hormones to uh, help you go to sleep. Now, what happens when the cortisol response becomes disrupted is sometimes people, if they're stressed in the longer term, can't produce enough cortisol in the morning to sufficiently wake up. So they begin to feel very tired in the morning. The second thing that can happen is that if you don't produce enough cortisol, if you get low blood sugar, but one of the things cortisol does is raise your blood sugar. So if you can't produce enough cortisol from being very stressed for long periods, uh, in response to high-carb meal, you get even more sleepy than, than you would do otherwise. So you, get ex you can get, for example, extreme afternoon fatigue after a big pasta meal. And the third thing that can happen is the circadian rhythm can become disrupted. So you don't produce enough cortisol during the day, but then just before bed, because you're worrying about things or working later into the night, you get a misplaced cortisol release, which means you're kind of wide awake at midnight and find it very difficult to go to sleep. Now, the combined effect of that longer-term stress from all those different sources combined with lack of sleep, what lack of sleep will do is increase your cortisol release for the next day because you need to release more stress hormone to cope in a state of lack of sufficient recuperation. And this is why all these recent sleep books and people talking about sleep, because it impacts on all these other systems. So in the past where people might have said, oh, I can get by fine on six hours, I'm, I'm really, really good. Actually, they may be coping, but at what long-term cost? And certainly one of the short-term impacts of that is a chronically raised level of cortisol. In terms of what that does to your, say, let's say carbohydrate cravings, well, cortisol is known to trigger uh, an increased craving and requirement for, for carbohydrates because when you eat the carbohydrates, it slightly blunts and lowers your cortisol levels somewhat. What cortisol will also do is cause a a longer-term, slightly elevated level of blood glucose. And so what that can do is slowly um, decrease the body's ability to use, utilize sugar properly and store sugar properly in, in the muscle as, as stored glycogen. And, and the bit that you alluded to before is the cortisol. There's actually a lot of cortisol fat receptors in the gut 
uh, around uh, centrally. So what that will that will do in in the presence of excessive calorie intake is on the back of um, excessive cortisol is you can get a greater um, accumulation of fat centrally and viscerally around, around the organs. And is that man as well then that what feeds also man boobs? Is that is that the same thing? It's just at a different level and that would depend on different people, for example? Well, that's slightly different. So there's a few reasons you can get man boobs. And I'm going to be honest with you, at my age, a lot of people are fighting dad bod syndrome. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, if you don't do weights, you won't have sufficient muscle on the chest to to not allow the skin to eventually get a little bit saggy into your older years. So. The first thing to say about if you want to, if you feel like you're getting man boobs, is tone up your whole body, including doing uh, a balanced routine which includes sufficient chest work. So you've got sufficient muscle on the pectoral area to keep that keep it firm, even if there is a bit of fat there. The second thing to say is that if someone is just very fat, that it will appear like you've got slight man boobs because you're fat all over. There's fat on the chest. The fat's slightly saggy, so it, it can look like a slight boob effect on the chest. But that's that's slightly different to uh, gynosdermastica, which is man, man, the technical term for man boobs, where, which is where you're essentially producing uh, too much estrogen. And let me just clarify that. What, what will tend to happen is that men will not be producing too much estrogen but they will be converting their testosterone into estrogen via an enzyme called aromatase. And the thing with aromatase is aromatase levels are very high in body fat. So basically, the more fat you have, the more likely you are to convert your existing testosterone into estrogen. And then if you have high levels of estrogen, what will happen is you will start to get female fat deposition patterns so you can get fatter boobs you can get fatter triceps you can get fatter thighs essentially you'll be storing fat in an estrogen driven fashion so matt people would say like the general public what my perception was from people talking about man boobs and estrogen levels in the body is that comes a lot from alcohol because alcohol triggers estrogen or has estrogen in it and then also so many foods are stored in plastics and plastics contain estrogen. Is that any relevance to this? Yes, I think I think all those factors do play a role, but perhaps perhaps not as big a role as just the sheer um, body fat versus lean mass. But they certainly play a part and they certainly are important considerations. Now, some people say that plast- the total plastic um, burden as it were in terms of plastic exposure through like you say drinking water bottles the just the general ecosystem the amount of plastic in the environment plastics in, in chemicals will all have an estrogen mimicking effect in the body and there's a feminization of nature theory that that's why decade on decade testosterone levels are dropping in men sperm counts are dropping in men you're getting a rise in all types of estrogen-driven cancers in females and, and and fertility problems are much more common and so on. Because food seems to be, apart from 
our choices and our, our stress and work leading to eating more carbs, etc. There's then the other side of the coin, which is the problems of the food quality and this idea that their food advice is riddled with corruption, Most, much like people would say with Big Pharma that many mainstream studies are, are actually sponsored by the pharma companies to get the result that they want to, that maybe it's the same in the food industry. It's an interesting one, isn't it? It's a controversial area, and yet where there is a lot of money and power, there is almost always corruption. If you start to look around in the supermarket and start to read the backs of food packets, the discerning shopper should do that. The discerning individual should be aware of what they're putting into the body. Then quite rapidly, you can see that in a lot of the larger food conglomerates that the types of food that they produce are riddled with chemicals, additives, preservatives, a number of things which, whatever you believe in terms of the science, it's just more chemicals for the body to process. If we assume that there is a finite capacity to, to detoxify all these different chemicals in the foods, chemicals in the environment, you know, the body produces toxins itself on its own, let alone what we're exposed to from exhaust fumes and air pollution and all the rest of it. The sensible individual would do their best to reduce their total toxic burden without going crazy to choose foods which are real food just choose choose real food and cook from scratch and and try not to choose things with any names of any uh, additives that you don't recognize that you might have to pick up a dictionary to find out what that particular compound is general common sense around that sort of area but the problem is that we're not taught this you know people are even people in the corporate space really well-educated people. It's not taught in schools. The only practical way people learn this is if they've got a personal interest in the area and they've read around the subject, or if they hire a nutritionist or someone that knows more than they do. And this is exactly why it's a pleasure to have you on the show, because I find I go to the gym five days a week. It's part of my day. So I build it in as actually part of my day. And if I don't do it, it's like I haven't charged up my brain for the day. As a result of doing it, my productivity is so much higher. I get more done in less time. And therefore, I'm not bringing work home. I'm not up late. I'm not stressed about work because I've got it done in the time I, I have done it. And yeah, it's a, it's a challenge to get out of bed and do that. But it becomes a habit after a period of time. What I'm leading to here is we're going to look at your formulas to deal with this. But before we, we go there, it'd be great to understand in your terms, how the work you do on your body powers your brain in this knowledge economy? Well, it's a known fact that sedentary, overweight people at work are less productive. The studies are done all the time and they get sick more often and, and their, their capacity to uh, produce work in a given time is lesser than someone that keeps themselves fit. And that, and that is probably down to, like you've mentioned, is... They just don't, they might feel like they're working twice as hard as someone else, but their, their energy and their, their drive, which is, which is related to the, their neurotransmitters and other, other hormones in the body, you know, it's not functioning at, at the optimum capacity because they're eating the wrong foods, um, the, the body composition is poor. Uh, there'd be all kinds of things going on in the body which are producing uh, more inflammation. 
which can take away from feel-good hormones like serotonin. And in that state, in that kind of stressed, over-fat, under-muscled state, then the potential for increased stress hormone release will reduce the brain's capacity to work properly as well. So there's, there's all kinds of things that can go on in that situation, which you can actually fairly quickly um, turn around. You know, often I find people that are changing the way they eat will begin to feel better within two or three days, and then there will be a marked measurable difference in productivity and some of their physical parameters within a couple of weeks, as long as they're doing everything you ask of them. It's like a keystone habit, isn't it? It's like a, once you do it, you drink more water, you eat better, because you start weighing up these kind of balances of, yeah, I'm after doing all that work and I'm after burning those amount of calories. I don't want to waste my calories eating that muffin or whatever it is, whatever the, you know, the way in, in a lot of corporate environments, there'll be pastries lying around or, you know, those bars that look like healthy breakfast bars, but they're actually laden with calories and sugar. But also the other thing is you you tend to stop drinking because I find a lot of people feel bad that they're not in good shape. And because they feel bad, then they turn to the crappy foods or else they drink alcohol and alcohol then triggers more crappy foods. Yeah. So one of the cycles of not getting out of that kind of obesogenic environment is to do with self-esteem. That's one of the hardest ones to crack because... Like you say, people feel bad about themselves and then they eat more, drink more, do whatever to kind of de-stress themselves. They get a short-term de-stress but a long-term increase in their bodily stress by taking in excessive amounts of fats, sugars, salts and, and maybe booze and other recreational drugs as well potentially. So Matt, it'd be great to look at now the solutions I think one of the best ways and a great one for this time of year as well. So it's coming into, it's J July. So a great, a great one would be your quick start four week fat loss guide. What I loved about this is you talk about vision as well. You, you talk about how do you start even about seeing yourself differently? And it reminded me so much. And we talk about this on the show all the time, strategy within companies, vision, mission, values, etc. that you talk about a body transformation plan is exactly the same as a business transformation plan. And the first place to start is vision. 100%. I think if you don't spend the time on that in the first instance, it's almost destining your plan to, to fail. I often find people that get going too quickly without, without running through the firm reasons why they want to get where they want to get to and, and where that is and how they're going to measure it and all those sorts of simple things, simple things that we're told time and time again, but really things that could be skipped over and missed if people are a little bit too impatient. So, yeah, the vision piece is essential. And then I, I quite often get people also to go through a, a pleasure-pain document, which it really looks at how much you value the, the end point of the vision, how much you value your current the current practices that you might deem pleasurable, that you, that you might currently think that you, you're finding are a good, you know, good thing to do, like the two glasses of wine at night to de-stress, that kind of thing. So that, that piece is all about weighing up what you've got to sacrifice or change in order to achieve the longer-term 
outcomes. So essentially, it's knowing where you are, where you want to get to, then working out the plan to get where you need to get to. And the final part of that is, is being able to adhere to the plan. The adherence is equally as challenging. And it's why lots of people fall, they do a diet for a given period of time, then they fall off, they slip back into the, the old habits and then they end up you know, back at square one a period of time after. It's that, isn't it? It's habits because I see this in business transformation, whether it's innovation, digital, people and culture, whatever it is that there's initial kind of excitement. It's like a splash. But what we want is a ripple. It's easy to change business models, but to change a business model for a lasting period of time, you need to change mental models. And when I read your blog and your work, it triggered with me. That's the exact same thing. You really make the change when you make a mental leap. And that's why I thought the visioning process that you go through in order to get to your diet change is so fundamentally important. A really common bit of feedback that I get is that the the, the new way of eating isn't isn't as difficult as what people thought it might be. People often say, I don't feel like I'm actually on a diet. And I, and I actually say, good, because that's the last thing I actually want you to feel. You know, I really do want people to feel that they're just cha- yeah, changing the way they eat and actually not feeling deprived and, um, and actually getting better levels of nourishment, but just from, just from different foods, choosing different foods. You know, that, you know, that being said, I do, I do get people to set up principles and standards by which they adhere to. You know, I think that's certainly um, another cornerstone habit, which you, know, you have to have principles. Yeah, you, ha- you have to lead a principle-centered life in many ways, in business, in family, and all that other things. But the same things apply to the, what, what you choose to put in your body. You know, and I, I'm not talking about, you know, orthorexia or just people getting way too obsessed with things. I'm, it's all about a balance. But I like to I like to teach people what's in foods. So good, good or bad, you know, clean or dirty or whatever you want to call it. You know which food you're enjoying most of the time when you when you when you're choosing to eat it. And you can certainly feel the difference as well. That's one of the things I loved about eating clean is you feel the difference afterwards you can feel it powering you for a while it's like a dynamo that gives you a bit of energy but there's a really important thing you talk about matt as well and it's, it goes for business as well which is measurement but not measurement for the sake of it and you talk about measurement here being really important because you might not see the physical results of your work of your toil in the early days but you might see them in your what you measure yes exactly exactly so I like people to look at a variety of methods of, say, for example, body composition. So if you know someone that's good with calipers, you can get them to pinch you with the, with the calipers. Most people can pick up a set of the bioimpedance scales on Amazon or somewhere for 30 or 40 pounds. Those come with software now, so the scales will, will fire the results straight through to your phone. Those scales are hydration sensitive, so they only measure what you present to them. So if you jump on dehydrated, it will suggest your body fat is higher than if you jump on when you're well hydrated after training. You know you have to reproduce the conditions to get a, an accurate result. Be- because of that, I get people to jump on those most days. I think the other thing about jumping on the scales most days is it acts as an, an affirmation. 
and a self-awareness that, you know, if things slip after a holiday or a stag weekend away, you know, you know the damage and you know how to, you've got the plan to get things back on track. And then the tape measure is brilliant. You know, measuring the, measuring the waist around the, around the belly button. So level with the belly button, measuring the hips, the thighs, the upper arms, keeping a track of that and actually also doing some, some snaps, you know, everyone can take a little selfie, uh, once a week and then you can track, you can track the changes. Brilliant. And then Matt, so that's the vision and the measurement, I suppose, in place, but take us through a day of the corporate person. So somebody pre-commute on their commute into the office, the snacks they may have, I'm just throwing this out there, but the typical thing would be breakfast on the run or eat breakfast in the car or on a, on a commute where it's really uncomfortable. You can't eat breakfast there and then rush something in the office maybe having porridge at their desk and then coffee throughout the day and then lunch at their desk, rush home and having dinner. And then there's always that thing. And I'd love to focus a little bit this one. There's this, the crashed periods of the day, the sugar crashes, 11, four and later on at night as well. Yeah. I mean, you just, you just summarized the average start of, of, of many, many executives and busy people whizzing across London. Uh, you know, it's one of the reasons the coffee shops and the pastries just, Guess absolutely hammered, don't they? If I was to say, well, what would you do versus what you just described to me? Well, the first thing is I always assess the uh, level of commute. So if you live a long way from where you work, then obviously you're going to have to drive slash get the train. I had a client in Fleet Street this morning. I could get the tube there, which would take 45 minutes. I can, I can march there, it takes 55 minutes. So I can either sit there, sit on in a stuffy, polluted, cramped, stressful environment and get no exercise, or I can walk through the back streets away from the heavily polluted roads briskly in the sunshine and get 55 minutes of, you know, it is low intensity, but it's an aerobic workout. As long as you've got a, a spare t-shirt when you get to the other end you can just quickly change your t-shirt so you're not going into the meeting too sweaty and I, I would suggest the other th- the other thing people do is they often you know they wake up and they think I've got to eat breakfast we, and I, so I often say to people well, why 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 do you need to eat breakfast right now just just wait till later wait till you're hungry you know do maybe do a nice morning walk if it's an opportunity for you to commute via walking and all the all the classic things we're told about, get off the bus stop a couple of stops earlier, the tube stop a couple of stops earlier. If it's, if it's, if you, if you work, if you live six miles from work, you can get yourself a bike and you can cycle, you know, all those things. And, you know, I know it's not for everyone. Some people, you know, if they're, if it's a tradesman, they're going to have to drive their van full of tools to work, of course. So it doesn't always present itself as an opportunity to convert your commute into exercise. But if it is there, have a think about how you can do it. Second thing I'd say about generally eating throughout the day is that I find for myself and for a lot of clients that avoiding avoiding excessive amounts of carbohydrate through the day seems to keep energy levels higher, and that's because you don't get a huge influx of sugar and then a release of insulin and then maybe a low, a low blood sugar 
type feeling straight after the meal, which makes you feel really, really sleepy. So I've lost track of the amount of clients who I've switched to, you know, protein salads, protein vegetables at lunch. And then they're, they're all saying, now I'm not sleeping in my after, afternoon meetings because I've stopped having my pasta salads at, and, or, or my baguettes or my sandwiches or my bats, you know. Fasting is quite in vogue and it is a, a valid method to reduce overall calories and therefore reduce your body fat. So pushing the morning, the first meal of the day back a bit, so you might have your first meal at lunchtime by essentially skipping breakfast and or just having something very light or protein-based for breakfast, like two eggs, coffee or something like that. I think putting a little uh, protein snack in the afternoon is helpful because Often that means when people get home, they're not absolutely ravenous. Get through the door and then begin making bad food choices as soon as they're through the door because they're super, super hungry. Or if they've gotten dehydrated and then they get through the door and then they're, all they're thinking about is a cold beer or cold glass of wine and it's they're not really maybe after the alcohol, they're just after some fluids. And by being dehydrated when they get through the door, they'll possibly drink one or two beers or one or two wines before they've even thought about it. You know, suddenly they're five, six, seven units in, and it's they haven't even started cooking their dinner yet. I think if you if you if you skip your early morning feed, push the second feed back a bit, you can afford to take in a few more calories at night. And I'm I'm a fan currently of not overly restricting calories at night, but creating a deficit throughout the day, or possibly by working out before you get home for your supper, and. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is I find that if you reduce calories too much at night, some people can have difficulty sleeping. The second and third reasons are often at night, it's a time where you're home with the kids, with the family, with the wife or partner, and it's conducive to a family occasion. You're sitting around, you know, you converse, you socialize, and it's often around a meal. That's a, that's a nice thing to do socially, family unity and that sort of thing. We're also programmed to want more calories at night, possibly a survival-based mechanism around, you know, making sure you store enough calories so that, so that in times of famine there's enough there. It is the case that lots of people crave a bit more of those types of starches at night, so rather than restrict them too much, you can have a few more by creating a deficit earlier in the day. Now, if someone has very poor glycemic control or very poor blood sugar control, then yes, of course, I would shift the balance of carbs in the evening as well as throughout the day. But mostly if you, you can create a deficit somewhere and then a surplus somewhere else, as long as over, if fat loss is your goal, as long as your overall deficit is sufficient in a 24-hour and weekly period, then you, you will make progress. Brilliant. And, and last question for you, Matt, then, because there's loads more, by the way, we could go on forever because... You talk about nutrition, you talk about supplementation, et cetera, et cetera, on your website. And I'll ask you where people can find you in a second. But the, the one was interesting. You said about fasting. So if I fast in the morning, I push my breakfast out. What about if, if I train? Do I need to eat directly after I train to get energy straight into those muscles? Or how does that work? Okay, so there's two things there. One is if you... If you're going to train later in the day and, and um, you're training for performance, then by not eating after the first session of the day, the second session is going to be compromised for sure. 
However, if you're training not for a performance effect, but for an aesthetic effect, then delaying your refeed after your morning workout will potentially prolong the amount of fat you can burn following the workout. So as soon as we eat carbohydrates and release insulin, the fat burning machinery is, is sort of downgraded. It doesn't completely stop burning fat, but you might go from burning, you know, 80, 90% fat down to 10% fat for fuel. The second thing to say is lots of people, I was guilty of this, back in the old bodybuilding days and stuff, is to get the protein in straight after the workout. What's now known is actually that really the only thing that matters about in terms of muscle building is that your 24-hour protein balance around the workout. That's to say is not stressed, unless, unless bodybuilding and high-performance muscle-based power sports are your profession, in which case eat straight after. But if you're just training recreationally three, four, five times a week, you can finish your workout, make your way to your next meal and eat a meal within a couple of hours of your workout as long as you're eating sufficient protein in your other two or three meals, you'll make gains fine. Mm, that one's really interesting. Well, Matt, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And where can people find out more about you and your work and your corporate wellness work? Two places. One is aminoman.com. And the second is matt at aminoman.com. Those are probably the two easiest ones to remember. But if you just if you search Matt Level Nutritionist, Matt Level Sports Nutritionist, a, a few things should pop up. Yeah, Matt Level Performance and Health Nutritionist, Body Recomposition Expert. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, mate. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you.